Welcome to the Data Able Podcast, where Dave Mathias and Matt Jesser dive into data. Each week, they cover the culture, knowledge, and practices that successful organizations, leaders, and individuals use to get value out of data. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Data Able. This is Dave Mathias here. And today, I have the extreme fortune of talking with Brent Dykes. And Brent is the author of, well, it's my favorite new data book. It's called Effective Data Storytelling. And he's also actually Senior Director of Data Strategy at Domo. So if you use Domo products, you've probably already heard of him. If you haven't, you should hear more about Brent. He's also a contributor of Forbes. He's written a ton of great articles on Forbes. Welcome to Data Able, Brent. Hey, great to be here, Dave. Thanks for inviting me. Well, so we are here. We're talking data. We had, we've had we had a couple of conversations before this podcast, but can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and let the audience know more than that high level that I introduced you with? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So my background actually goes comes from marketing analytics. So I worked a long time at Omniture and Adobe and spent 12, 12 years there. So that was kind of my entry point into analytics. I have a background in marketing. And I studied marketing in college and also with my MBA. And so that was where I focused most of my time. I actually wrote another book on web analytics and published that, Web Analytics Action Hero. So that was my first exposure to writing. And then, and then as you mentioned, I work at Domo as a, on the data strategy side, mainly in our consulting group, working with our customers to help them with the data adoption, building a data-driven culture. And so... One thing I started off with is is your book, because that just recently came out. Could you talk a little bit more what the impetus was when you started thinking about writing effective data storytelling? And then we'll maybe get into a little bit more. I have some more questions about the book and some really cool things that I thought you brought up, which are, are really insightful. Great. Yeah. So interesting. I'll back up all the way back to when I started dabbling with PowerPoint. And I became pretty good at, and adept at using PowerPoint. And I actually did a, a blog on PowerPoint called powerpointninja.com. It's actually still up there. I've got a hundred articles. I haven't added anything because I started writing books about analytics and data, but, but so that was kind of my first kind of foray into like communication and really studying how we communicate insights and ideas. And, and then when I got into, obviously I started my career in analytics and started communicating things with customers and helping them with their communications of data. And then I really started to see, oh my gosh, there's a real need here for telling a story with our numbers, with taking that insight and sharing it in a way that other people can understand it and hopefully drive action from it, right? That's the key thing here. I want to drive change. I want to drive action. And so I started probably back in 2013, 2014, started presenting on this at, at Adobe Summits and and then started speaking at different conferences. And then because each year I would have to kind of come up with some new ideas, some new examples, some new concepts, it just grew from there. So over the last six years or so, I've been presenting every year, either at a Domo or an Adobe or an Omniture conference about this kind of content. And then also speaking around the world at different conferences. And so it just got to the point where it's like, oh my gosh, I have to share some of these ideas, share some of these insights that I've had with a broader audience. And so you start getting this brain bug or whatever, telling you that you should be writing and sharing this stuff. And so it was a probably a three-year process to actually write the book. 
And it was it was a labor of love. I really love this sub- subject. Hopefully that comes through on the pages, but it's it's a topic that I'm really passionate about and excited to help other people to tell, to take their insights and communicate them in a way that's going to help people to, to act on them and influence and, and persuade people to to get value from the from the insights. Yeah, it certainly shows the labor of love. Like you said, it is a very readable book and it's, it's well, and, and thanks for sending me a copy of this. And, and when I had read it first, I mean, right away, it, it grabbed me right from the start. I think I was really happy to see when you got to chapter three and we'll talk a little bit more chapter three and, and certainly every chapter was great. But, but before we get into that, what is people th- oftentimes conflate data visualization and data storytelling. Can you explain, because you, you do a very good job of differentiating those two things. And can you talk a little bit about more what the difference is between data visualization and data storytelling? Yeah, I think with data storytelling, we're taking visualization, data visualization. It's one piece of the three pillars that I feel are important to data storytelling. Obviously, you have data, which is, am I getting relevant, important data and, and then when I apply the narrative to that, I'm helping people to understand those numbers. You know, rather than taking a, a raw data table, dropping, dropping that on somebody's lap, I'm actually going to act as a guide and I'm going to walk them through those numbers and, and explain to them what they mean. And, and then the visualization component, I see that as important to helping to explain our insights. If you work with data, you realize that visualization of the numbers helps us to see patterns, anomalies, trends in the numbers that we just wouldn't see if it was just tabular data. And so that's where visualization comes in. It's it's a it's a core part of data storytelling, but it's not the whole thing. And I and I honestly think that the data visualization is more than just data storytelling, right? There's many times where we're visualizing numbers, especially on the exploration side. We're not telling stories or on, on a dashboard where when we build a dashboard, sometimes there is no story that we we're told and we're, we're maybe framing it that somebody might be able to find a story within the dashboard. But I, I view visualization as more than just storytelling, but a key component of storytelling in the sense that it helps us to clearly explain our insights to the audience And then that narrative piece is really important when we combine narrative with the visuals. That's where we're engaging our audience. Because a lot of the times as human beings, we're obviously very focused on vision and visual stimuli, but also the narrative for us as human beings is part of our DNA. It's how we make sense of the world around us. And and that narrative is is a key part of communication and something that we need to tap into as data experts or or even just people who have an insight. I don't I don't I don't want to say that only analytics people or BI people have insights. I think executives can have insights. I think business people can have insights that they want to share broadly. And so that visualization becomes a part of our storytelling, but we need the narrative, we need the the data to be trustworthy, reliable, relevant, and then all of that comes together as data storytelling. So one thing you've mentioned a couple of times is the narrative. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think you do a good job of of talking about 
what the narrative is and and how people have narratives, whether you're putting it there or not. And and so one of those things you may have to do is overcome their narrative or take their narrative and, and put in what your intended narrative is if you're trying to change your mind. Yeah. I mean, if, if we look at how the human brain, and that's that's what I focus on, I think it's important to understand from the psychology or behavioral economics side. And I, I talk about system one and system two. If you've read Daniel Kahneman's book. Very few people have actually gotten all the way through it, but, <laughs> but if you started it at least, you will, you'll be familiar with system one and system two. And system one, so let me start with system two. System two is when we think about how the brain processes information. It's really that logical kind of conscious analytical thinking of, of data. However, system one, all information flows through system one, which is our intuitive side where we're processing information based on patterns and heuristics. And, and really that system one, as Daniel Kahneman talks about it, he, he says a lot of our processing of the information that we receive goes through that. And actually system two is a lazy controller in the sense that it only jumps in when it needs to. And so what happens is the system one really responds to, to storytelling or, or to narrative, because what it's trying to do is it's trying to make sense of all of these stimuli that are coming in and trying to alert the system to when there's something that needs to be processed and really considered. And so narrative becomes really important to how we present our ideas. And, and, and I talk about this in the book that a lot of the times we think, oh, if we had the facts, we come in with the facts and, and maybe there's a, a misconception that somebody has. And so we'll just drop this fact on them and then everything will, will self-correct and they'll start thinking a new way. And and if you've tried this, you'll, you'll probably recognize that it doesn't work a whole lot. It's very rare that, that we, when we come in with an insight. And that's, that's because what we have to do is we have to realize that the existing misconception that we're trying to replace is wrapped in a narrative, right? And so when we remove that piece from that narrative, the, the narrative, the residual narrative is still there. And unless we provide a new narrative around the new fact that we're presenting, that they can then latch on to, to accept and, and to go forward with, that's where the challenge is. Because in, in studies that they've done, they've showed that even when you come in with facts and you try to remove these misconceptions, sometimes people will just revert back to their old narrative that they had because it's comfortable. They have all the, everything kind of fits in their brain the right way. And we haven't helped them to see how this new insight or this new fact, layering it in a story, a new narrative, can re- replace the old narrative that is was broken and wasn't correct, and 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 this is a huge challenge. This is this is very hard, and so I view data storytelling as as a way to help us communicate more effectively to an audience that might be resistant to our idea or might have information that's not correct, and and how do we correct that? And there's the combination of having visuals. Visuals can be very helpful in some of the studies that I found to help people to see things in a new light, regardless of your political affinity or whatever. Actually, visualizations were able to overcome that. And also narrative is is very powerful as well. When we listen to someone and sharing a narrative, we almost enter into a trance-like state where we're, we're not nitpicking on the details as much. We're not, because what happens is you come with data, facts, all of a sudden our, our defenses go up. I talk about in the book, kind of like a shield comes up like in Star Trek where we, we don't want to listen and we're very skeptical, we're very 
cautious. However, when somebody comes with a story, our demeanor changes, our op- our, we're more open-minded and we want to listen. We want to hear where the story's going. We want to see where the narrative takes us and we, we are more open to receiving new information this way. So it's extremely powerful, extremely helpful for, for those of us that have an insight that we want to communicate. We want people to give it a chance. And, and so the, the combination of narrative and visuals with our data is really what can break down those barriers that stop just data and figures from going anywhere. That is a great explanation there. And getting more into the psychology of data, like you're saying, I mean, so the feeling is, is that almost everyone that's executives are going to be so system one thinking, how do I get them to be thinking about my data rationally? Your suggestion then is you're, you're trying to, if, if they're, if they're going to be skeptical of, of what you're presenting, you're trying to in addition to visuals, you're trying to provide a narrative that will get them to adjust the story that's, that will more sustain that belief. Is there anything else? Because I think a lot of people get a little frustrated where they feel like, hey, I, I've, I've done this great analysis, or why are people not looking at my taking what I've sent? I think you use an example in the, the book of a product manager at a company where she was, and I forgot if you actually had said the the type of product or what it was, but she was a little frustrated that her product wasn't selected. Can you talk a little bit more on that example that you you had in your book? Yeah, yeah. So she had, it's based on a real example, obviously not disclosing who the person is or the company or the technology, but basically where she felt like she had the data for this new product innovation at her company and that it would fill a gap in their product strategy. They didn't have any capabilities in this area. And so she went out, she got the data, she did extensive conversations and interviews and surveys with customers, got a lot of great data points around this. And they built out a prototype product to kind of show the organization that it would be feasible and and even talk to different teams internally about how that product would work. And everybody was internally very excited excited about that. She kind of took for granted maybe the narrative side because she, she felt like it was just a slam dunk. This was just going to win, win, win across the board. And, and to give a little bit away, what happens is they were going up to the annual cycle where they approve projects to invest in. And so there'd be five projects that would, or five initiatives or whatever that would get funding. And she was very confident that her project would get funding based on all this data right? that she had. She had great data. She had great both externally and internally. And so she went into this almost not anticipating any problems. And then after the executive team had reviewed everything, she found out her project didn't make the, the list, didn't make the top five. So basically her the development team that she had was disbanded and applied to other projects. And and then she was going out to try and find out what happened. Like, how did this go? How did this get sideways? Or how did this go sideways? Well, it turns out that internally there there may have been some jealousy or, or maybe some politicking going on that she wasn't aware of. And another group, and, and again, she wasn't totally sure about this, but she feels that another group had set up a rumor that the company was going to acquire another vendor that had similar capabilities. And so when the executives heard that, they decided, well, if we're buying technology that offers this capability, 
then clearly this project doesn't need to happen because we're going to acquire the technology. So she immediately reached out to their mergers and acquisition team and they said, no, no, we don't. We're not talking to anybody who has this technology. We're not. So it wasn't wasn't on our list of. So basically, she found out that somebody had formed a narrative to either vault their project ahead of hers or maybe they felt like they could produce that that technology should come from their team as opposed to her team. For whatever reason, um, she lost control of the narrative and and didn't build a narrative around her data to reinforce it or to maybe even defend against this challenging idea. And so it's it's you can have the best data, you can have great visualizations, but you also need to be careful about the narrative, that you're controlling the narrative, that you're helping people to really understand how this data comes together. And a narrative around your data and insights is, is really important and helpful to carry it and, and make sure that it resonates with audiences, that people remember it, that it's engaging. And so we can't just dismiss the, the narrative component of, of our data stories and how we share insights. Thanks for doing a better job of relaying that than I certainly could. I, I think that is a great story. And, and it's also why I think when I was reading this book, because now you certainly you work for a company called Domo, who's doing some really cool things with data visualization and a lot of things that you can do beyond the just simple data visualization. But certainly the challenge still is, is I think people are feeling that the tools are going to help them build the story on themselves. And there's more emphasis with natural language processing and everything else where you can we automatically create some snippets based on to, to indicate the story. Can you talk where you feel that where the, where the, at least the current state of the technology is and where you think it's going and then how, how does that play a role if you're a person that's using a, t- a tool like Domo or whatever tool that it is, where they can still feel like the, the, the creating dashboards is great, but sometimes you still have to go in and you have to present important stories. I think you even get into, in one of your sections, you, you have a quadrant, which sort of indicates some of these things where you're really trying to change narratives that you're going to run into bigger hurdles that you're going to have to do that in a form that's more actual in-person type presentations or other other ways to try to con- convince people. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the first part of that and then I'll talk about the second part. So the first part was, I think, so obviously a lot of technology out there like Domo, many other tools out there. And these are great because they help us to get the right information in front of people and help them to find insights, right? And so finding an insight is different than explaining an insight. And so I really, I really emphasize in my book the difference between the exploratory side of analysis and the explanatory side of analysis. And so I think a lot of the tools that we have today are very good on the exploratory side, that we can go in, we can explore the numbers, hopefully find an insight that's meaningful to our business or to our, our organization. And, and then, then we have to switch over to the explanatory side. And I think that's where often when we think about that, I think it's more akin to a data presentation where we have to go in and explain the numbers, walk people through the visualization, selecting which visualizations. Now, when we we go through the exploratory side, we might use all kinds of visualizations to find 
the insights. And then what we have to do, and I talk about this in the book, is we have to pivot and question, okay, so the visualization that that helped me to see that there's a, a challenge with our customer support call center. There's, a, there's an issue going on. I've found it using certain visualizations. That's great. Now what I have to do is as I pivot to then explaining that to others who may not have the same Obviously, they haven't spent hours or days, weeks in the data like I have. And it's not necessarily about simplifying the visualizations. It's really, as I talk about in the book, it's a lot of times we're just setting up comparisons, right? A lot of the visual work that we're trying to do. And then we have to step back from our visualizations that we used in our exploratory phase and say, are these will these communicate equally well when we're explaining the information? And so you might have to maybe change the data, meaning that, Rather than showing two data points trend over time, maybe we show the difference, the variance between those numbers. And so that simplifies it for the audience so they can more clearly see the insight that we're communicating. So we might have to change the underlying data. We might have to change the visualization. Maybe we had a scatter plot and it was there's some key points in there we're trying to highlight, but maybe maybe we need to switch it over to a bar chart or line chart or something. Depends on the data, how we're communicating it. And one of your one of your points was you mentioned that quadrant and and I, what that's related to is I actually don't feel like we always need to tell data stories. Some people might and that might shock some people and they might say, "What? I thought you're an advocate for data stories." I am absolutely yes, but there are times where it's not needed. And the axes I'll, I'll give you kind of the axes on my on this matrix that you mentioned where. On one side, you have the business value, right? So on the bottom, you have low on the left and high on the right. So that's, that's the, the bottom scale. And on this, the, the vertical scale on the left, I have the type of insight, whether it's an easy insight, which is at the bottom, or a hard insight to understand, which is at the top. And so in this matrix here, we focus on data storytelling in the zone where I say it's mid to high level of value and it's mid to high level of hardness. And what I mean by what makes an insight hard to understand? Well, it's counterintuitive, right? That's going to be harder for us to follow. If it's intuitive, then that's, that's going to be easy for us to kind of follow. Maybe it's costly to implement. If it's easy to implement, then that's, again, easy. That's easy for us to kind of, that's an easy insight. Whereas if it's costly, counterintuitive, if it goes against the norms, there's a bunch of criteria that I put there. But whenever it's hard for us to embrace a new insight, that's where the combination of high value and hard to follow or hard to accept the insight, it becomes important that we tell data stories. Now, on the flip side, if it's something that's an insight that's of low value and fairly intuitive to follow, do I need to build a data story around that? No, I don't. I don't need to waste my time because if the results are expected and they come in as expected, I'm not going to have to put a lot of effort into explaining that to the audience. Whereas if the results are unexpected, shocking, surprising, all of a sudden then that, that means that I need to spend more time explaining the numbers, helping people to come around to what the numbers are telling us. And so it requires more of an investment. And I'm only investing that time because there's high value, right? And, and it doesn't mean just high business value. It could be this could save lives. This could help save lives or something like that. So it's not just about business value. It could be just value in, in a base sense. 
Yeah, I think really taking a step back and understanding the value of things and how you're delivering that message is critical for people to think more about, just like understanding your audience. And I know you go into that some, certainly in your book of of understanding your audience and how receptive people are. I think when you start thinking about, even with, uh, like, I'm trying to get people to more often use video and other things to deliver their message in ways that they may not have been comfortable doing in the past. I think there's other ways that we, we're not always going to get a 20 minute or an hour presentation with folks to really go over our whole story, but there's other ways to do it creatively and still at the same, same time be impactful. So just thinking of, of different ways as a person that's going to be delivering variants of data stories, because not everything is going to be an in-person presentation. So what are other ways that you can do this? And I, I hopefully there will also be the ability, I, I would like to see more of the tools. I know a lot things support embedded videos and other things, but even just trying to really help people want to provide more stories more easily within the tools themselves. So when you're you're passing that information along, and I'm, I know each of the, the, the vendors uh, seems to be slowly progressing down this route, but I do think that is the an area that has a lot of opportunity still and how you can help people be better storytellers outside of that boardroom presentation type dynamic. So go ahead. Yeah. And I think one of the key pieces about a data story is that it mimics a real story in the sense that it's, it follows a linear sequence, right? I think that's one of the key things about a data story that is goes beyond just data visualization because it's not just having, a lot of times it's not just having one visualization that explains the whole story in its entirety, and everything is encapsulated in that one chart. Often what it takes, and my experience is, yes, you can have, what is it, Charles Menard's, Napoleon's campaign visualization that tells a story in its entirety in one visual. But often what I've seen in business is, no, I have to, I have to share multiple charts to explain the insight. And, and that's a key thing here is that that linear sequence of sharing ideas and concepts is is something that is going to be a key part of storytelling. And as you mentioned, video is a way to do that. Data presentations is a way to do that. Sometimes there's interactivity that people can put into different data communications so people can click through things. But I think that linearity, or I don't even know if it's a word, but the linear sequence of something is really important because if you think about a story, right? How does a story typically, how does a story arc? Typically it starts with kind of like, let's take Harry Potter, right? We, we see this boy, he's living a miserable life, living in the basement or in, under the stairs. And we kind of meet the, we we're associated, we're introduced to this character. And then all of a sudden something changes where he's at the zoo and he's talking to a snake. And, and then all of a sudden, and then it builds from there where he goes to Hogwarts and then, and then he's battling this Voldemort and, and that's the climax. And then all of a sudden they win the Quidditch cup and Harry returns as a, as a hero to his home. And that linear sequence there, it basically we can mimic that a lot in how we tell data stories. We're sharing background context information. And then we have that inciting incident, which is a hook, as I call it in the book, where there might be a metric or, or something that goes spikes up or down. And that leads into our data story. And then we start to reveal more and more insights into something. And so we're sharing different charts and different breakdowns and different analyses, getting closer and closer to our big aha moment, as I call it in the book, which is the climax of our data story. 
where we share a big insight that we've uncovered. And then after that, we're not done. At that point, then we're, okay, so what do we do with this insight? How do we resolve it? How do we, maybe it's an opportunity that we need to pursue or a problem we need to address. How do we do that? And, and so we've done some additional analysis around what steps we can take, what are the potential options and, and recommendations that, that we have for the audience so that they can make a decision. And so I think as we mimic that narrative arc or that structure with our data stories, that's going to be really critical and, and something that I think we want to be able to do with our data stories that maybe is a little bit more challenging today outside of video and maybe data presentation. One thing you had mentioned, and it's something mentioned a lot in, in our workshops, is around writing like a journalist versus and having that lead that provides information from the front and you're, you're, you have additional information that's added to that initial lead. But the whole idea is that you can quickly cut information. And I feel that that is a good way to oftentimes relate information to executives. And I, it's a way that at the same time, you do get into a variant saying, okay, well, maybe you're not able to get into the buildup and people will say, how do you get people along that whole data story because they, they won't pay attention to you after 30 seconds in. But you uh, had a creative way of trying to bridge that gap. Can you talk more about it? Yeah, I call it the, the so let me back up and just say one of the challenges that we have. So uh, when I was writing my book, I was looking at the word story. And there's a couple of different versions of story. There's the literary story, like just like the Harry Potter, right? That's kind of a literary form of story. But then there's the CNN, Fox News, whatever you, whichever way you lean, they have a way of delivering stories that's a new story. And new stories go back to what's called the inverted pyramid. So you put the most important information up front. Okay. And so if you read a news article in New York Times or USA Today, or whatever, they're going to have that lead, which is that first paragraph or two paragraph are really going to give you everything you need to know. And then as you go down the article, you're going to get deeper and deeper insights and minutia and details. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the way that was called the inverted pyramid, they did that back in the, the old days of journalism, because then what they could do on the front page is they could remove around articles and they could quickly edit them down to fit space, right? So, so a lot of news media has that model. And, but that poses a problem to us because... Really, by giving away the climax in the opening paragraph, you're kind of breaking the narrative arc, and so it you you don't get that you don't you don't get the anticipation, the suspense, you don't you, the tension, all of that goes away. And so I actually try to mimic the literary model with the with the narrative arc. Now, as you mentioned, we're not always going to have 30 minutes, an hour to kind of walk through somebody through a data story, especially with executives. And that was one of the, the things that people said in when I was doing different workshops and, and presentations and things. They'd come up to me afterwards and say, this is great, Brent. I love what you've got here, but I really don't know how I'm going to tell a data story to an executive who's really only going to give me five or 10 minutes. And I'm not going to, I'm going to get halfway into the story or a third into the story. And then they're going to cut me off and say, why am I listening to this story? And so I felt like, there is a, a way to get around this, and, and I call it the data trailer. And the data trailer, what it is, is you if you have your full data story, you basically pluck out a couple of key parts of your data story. 
and you put them into a data trailer. And if you think of a data trailer like a movie trailer, it's like the worst movie trailer you could ever have because it's basically giving away the climax of the movie and also the initial hook. So you're basically taking from your data story, you're taking that hook, which is, hey, something's changed in our environment and this is a problem or an opportunity or something. And then we skip all of the buildup and we jump right to the, the climax or the aha moment, meaning, okay, so we notice that sales are down here and the reason for it is X and it's going to cost us X amount of money if we don't fix it. And that's all you give them. And so you can deliver that in minutes. And then what you're hoping to do is for them to say, hmm, tell me more. And at that point, we can then jump into our data story. But we have their permission at that point. They're now curious. They're now interested. They know that it's worth their time because they've seen the payoff or they've seen the cost. You've sparked their curiosity with the, with the hook. And then it's where you can go, okay, well, let me tell you how I got there, right? I saw this this problem. And here are the data points that are kind of revealing how I got to my aha moment. And I can then go into the, the steps of how we address it, which they'll also be very interested in. So it's, it's I, I offer that as a way to navigate an audience where they're just tell me the numbers. Don't, don't tell me a story, just tell me the numbers. Because I think inherently, even executives like to hear data stories. We all like to hear stories. It's part of our humanity hearing stories. We like them. However, I think a lot of the time executives are bombarded with data and maybe bad data communications, data dumps, and, and, and it's a coping mechanism for them to say, just give me the numbers, just cut to the chase, because they're trying to manage fire hose of data that's coming at them. And so I think if we can use what I call that data trailer, where we set it up, and, and they could say, oh, I'm not interested in hearing more, and that's fine. Okay, we're not wasting your time. I'm not wasting my time to tell you a data story. I'm, I'd be disappointed, you know, if I felt like I was presenting that information to an executive that I think they need to hear and they, I get dismissed. Okay, but at least it, it had a shot. And then if, if they do come around, they're like, tell me more. I have an, I have a audience now that will listen to my data story, and and give it a chance. And so that's that's really what I recommended in my book that I think you were talking about. Yeah, exactly. And I think that data trailer is 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 vital in the setting of you're in an elevator, you're in a hallway, you're in the typical conversation areas where you may bump into somebody that you may have the opportunity to get in front. They ask you, executive asks you, hey, you're working on this. Can you quick give me an update? Having that trailer ready also may help you lead into that next meeting then too, because you're oftentimes not going to have that time in that setting, but how to get a better setting with that will allow you to tell that data story in the future. Yeah, absolutely. It's critical. So when you're, you're, you finish this book and, and now of course, like the, the hard part comes up, like we, we talked about before, it's like, okay, it's the book's out. It looks pretty. It's done well. Now the, now the hard parts uh, here to actually let people know about it. So obviously we're talking today, but Tell me more about the whole book process because you've done this now twice. And I think some people would be just curious a little bit about this whole book process and then going through this. What does this look like for you now? You want me to talk about it or give a little overview from beginning to end or just at the end? Just a little bit uh, beginning to the end. Uh, give that little data story behind it maybe <laughs> related, <laughs> a little narrative. 
Yeah. So I, I think I've talked to a lot of people who are very curious as well about the story or the book writing process. And I think the key thing is to find something that you're just passionate about. That's going to sustain you through the the down days where you're just like fighting creator's block and, and everything. And and I think if you have something you're passionate about that you feel like you need to share, that's the key, the first key thing. The experience that I had with the two books, I actually wrote three. I had an ebook in the middle, but that one was a free ebook. I still count it because it was still painful. It was 166 pages. So the first book I wrote, I had presented on an idea and it had a very successful presentation. And so that kind of gave me the the crux of, hey, I think this there's some concepts in here that would re- really translate well into a book. And at the time I was working for Adobe and Adobe had just acquired the company I was working all, uh, working for called Omniture. And, and this was a big kind of uh, move for them. And they had a lot of books on the, on the digital media side with, of, of Adobe, which is your traditional Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, Acrobat. But they didn't have any books on the new side, their digital marketing side that Omniture represented. And so my book was actually the first to be presented or, or the first book opportunity for Adobe in that area. And so it kind of got fast-tracked and I went through the, and what happened was I had written a lot of blog posts. And so I think that's one thing I would recommend to anybody is just start writing. If you feel like you may want to write a book at some point in your career, I would recommend writing blog posts, at least starting there, getting your voice, figuring out how to make information communicate clearly to others. And so that's kind of how I got started writing blog posts, both on Omniture's blog and also for my PowerPoint Ninja. And so then that gave me the ability to then write this first book. I would say the first couple of chapters were very edited quite heavily as I adjusted to writing a book as opposed to a blog post. And, and that book also had a very aggressive timeline. So we had a deadline that we had to meet. And in entirety, it took about like nine months of intensive writing. Every spare moment I had, I was writing and, and it was very stressful. But then that one was published. And the, the thing I learned too from writing books is that you kind of go into it naively thinking that the publisher is going to do everything for you. And often they're not. They don't care as much about your book as you do. And so often I've been involved in designing the covers of my books. I've created a lot of the, the diagrams and the charts. All of that came from me. And so it's, it's, you have to kind of prepare yourself to be more hands-on besides just the writing. Even editing and, and going through, trying to capture the errors in the book, that's something that you have to, you still have to be involved. You're, you're not just the writer, you're everything. And, and then you realize after your book goes out that you have to also be, play a big part in marketing your book. You're not done. You can't rest. And so with this book now with data storytelling, when I launched it, I did a series of videos, short videos on different concepts in the book. They, I call it the 12 days of data storytelling. I did that over the Christmas break. My wife and family weren't super thrilled because they didn't, I don't think I realized and they realize how much time it goes into recording and editing and adding a, a caption to all of the videos. But there's that constant marketing now that I need to do with this book, obviously working with the publisher, leveraging them as much as they can, because they have 
contacts to universities and different people out there that I'm not familiar with, but I have to, I'm probably the biggest marketer of my own book. And so I'm trying to think of how can I speak on podcasts? How can I, do I create my own podcast? Probably yes. Do I create an on-demand course based on the book? Probably yes. How are the different, I have to, unfortunately I have the advantage of being a Forbes contributor so I can write articles that are related to my book. I, I'm not going to do that for every article, but whenever there's a, an interesting idea that I think would be applicable, I'm going to maximize that. So that's one advantage I have. Being active on LinkedIn, being active on Twitter, leveraging whatever opportunities are out there. So one of the key things is when you write your book, you're relieved when it's done, but it's like it's almost like another race. You've just finished a marathon, you cross the finish line. And then somebody comes up to you said, says, okay, let's go run that next race, which is your marketing and book promotion. And, and in this environment where one of the best ways to promote your book is through conferences, right? So if you can speak at a conference and they buy a few hundred copies of your book, that can be huge. And you can get a really big build of people getting your book. But in this case now with, with coronavirus and, and obviously a lot of conferences shutting down, I don't have that opportunity now. So I'm going to have to leverage grassroots marketing as much as I can to promote this book. And and so I guess my word of caution to you is if you think you can write a book and then hand it off to somebody else, no, you're you're still actively involved. You're still required to promote your book and get it out there. And you're the, the CMO of your book. Well, I think it relates a lot to just what you're saying with data storytelling. I mean, if there's something, you can't just do the analysis and toss it out there. And so as a person that's really passionate about this, you're going to have to drive things through and really take ownership throughout that process. And, and you're no one's going to care about it as much as you care about it. And so I think a lot of lessons can be learned from from both ends of things. So one thing I want to definitely talk about, because you're talking about conferences, and yes, this is going to date a little bit of when we're doing this at both mention of coronavirus, but also Domopalooza was last week and it was done. It, it was very innovative in the sense that originally it was supposed to be in person and was quickly switched within a few weeks to actually doing a virtual conference. And literally the same morning that Domopalooza was happening and you guys are based out in Utah, there was an earthquake, biggest earthquake, I don't know in how long out in Utah. So at the same time, and I, I was watching uh, some of the, the conference online, it seemed like it went really well. Can you talk a little bit about Domopalooza and some of the new things that Domo was excited about as part of its new platform and things that it was talking about on that uh, conference? Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a, a really uh, bold move because we, we were probably out, I think it was three or four weeks from the conference and Josh James, our CEO, decided to switch it to a virtual conference. and. I don't even think it was actually that far out. I think it was only two or three weeks out. And so our entire marketing team had to completely pivot to doing this uh, almost like a new event. Obviously had a lot of the content still the same, but presenting new features and capabilities in person is different than recording videos. And so everybody mobilized and, and kind of stepped up to the challenge. I think it was an amazing effort by everybody. And it, when you throw in to boot, a earthquake on the day where you're the live portion of this. A lot of the breakout content was pre-recorded. There were also some videos that went into the into the main stage stuff that they did before they re, they did the breakout content. 
So there were some live components to it, but a lot of also recorded features of different customers, how they're leveraging the Domo platform. So it came, it came together and was really successful considering the amount of time and the effort and short notice and, and just being able to still deliver an experience for our customers. I think a lot of our customers were disappointed that they couldn't come on site and interact with our team and us with them and also with other customers of Domo. And so that's something that it did, it did come together and we, and kudos to all of the, the Domo marketing team and, and other product team that was pulling together everything. I was able to deliver my breakout session as a recording. In, in terms of some of the announcements that we made, so obviously we're, we're shifting more towards how we can make things easier for our customers to, to manage their data, to really tap into the dark data that's in a lot of organizations. I think that's one of the, the things that Domo, we're trying to help customers to really take advantage of the data that they have and, and really leverage that. And there's some good customer examples there. If, if you can still go and watch Domo Palooza, it's, it's recorded now. And so if you want to learn more about Domo, if you want to learn more about some of the innovations that we have in our products in, in some of the announcements that we made, it's all there available. You can go listen to my data storytelling breakout session as well and, and learn more about data storytelling from me as I kind of walk through some of the, the parts of my book. But Overall, it was, it was a really positive experience. We had a lot of great feedback from our customers. And, and given the circumstances, the ability to pull that off and, and, and still deliver something of value was great. It was, it was phenomenal that we, we were able to do that. Yeah, and I think that speaks very highly. And, and we're all making changes and adjusting in, in life. And many of us are more fortunate than many others that in this world that right now. So we should, it's great that you guys are able to make those adjustments and, and still give your customers value. And hopefully us harnessing the power of data as, as we're going through these uncertain times will definitely uh, help hopefully help us get to whatever the, I hate to use the phrase new normal is, but I do think there'll be a, a new normal. So uncertain normal at this time, but I, I do think those that can can use data to help us get closer to whatever that new normal is and, and hopefully maybe creating whatever that story that we want to have in the future for us as humanity is, is definitely important. So to be determined. <laughs> Well, and so we'll definitely put links to your session, uh, Effective Data Storytelling, the crucial last mile of analytics that you did at Domopalooza. But want to make sure to ask you a, a couple of things related since you do work for a company like Domo and we've had Ben on before. Certainly, I do see a lot of changes that are happening with the different tools that are out there trying to make advances. But if you're going to look in your crystal ball and say, where is the world of these business intelligence or however you want to term them tools, where do you see the five or so years from now? Where, where do we think these will play a role in organizations and how will they differ from where they are now? Well, I think this is probably the safe answer, but I think it's real. I think we're going to see more and more of machine learning and, and AI being a part of, of the BI stack and, and, and how we take machines and, and automate as much as possible some of the, the harder things that we need to do with our data. How do we make sure that the data is leveraging that dark data and getting in and organizing it, classifying it, helping it to be connected to whatever 
platform that we have so that we can access it and use it, get mine it for more value than maybe we are today. And so I think that's going to be huge. We're going to see technology augment. We talk a lot about augmented analytics and how that's crucial because at the end of the day, we want humans focused on things that they're good at and maybe having computers do things that we're not so good at. And and one of the things that I've seen that I think is is a little bit unfortunate is with like the natural language generation, they kind of position the describing of data stories as storytelling. And in my mind, that's not storytelling. That is descriptive text that's describing maybe what a visualization is already telling the audience. And I don't think that text is necessarily a replacement for a visualization. If your visualizations are so terrible that they can't be understood without having text, then maybe that visualization is not the right one. So I I, I think we're going to go beyond just the descriptive kind of text going with our visualizations. I think that's humans still play an active part in that to kind of be the storytellers and to they'll know data points that are sit outside of of the of the visualizations and maybe the, t- the the data tables that we have and bringing in additional context or explanation. I think that's the key thing: difference between describing data and explaining data. And I. I hope that maybe in the next five years, maybe we'll see more of that happen where we'll go beyond just describing data and explaining it. And and the other thing too, I think there's a lot of opportunity on the exploratory side. We're starting to see that with anomaly detection and other things where technology can go in and aggregate data, can, can obviously process information at a much higher rate than we can. And so I think to augment the way that humans are interacting with the data. I still I still feel like that's where human beings are going to be still valuable is on the data storytelling. I don't think we can completely automate that, at least not in the next five years, maybe in 25 years, maybe. But I think the areas where technology can help us is finding the insights and flagging insights that could potentially be of beneficial value to the organization and then working with the, the analysts to kind of go in and, and explore the numbers. And I think the technology is going to get better at highlighting and bringing insights to the surface so that then we as human beings can go in and then present that information, add the additional context, make it more clear to an audience that, that may not be as familiar with the numbers and, and data or processes or, or different things behind the scenes that we can bring to bear. So I think exploratory side, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity. And I think, again, along the way too, there will be innovations in in how we display and communicate information as well that, that will hopefully make us all better data storytellers as well. I think that's really well stated. I, I couldn't agree more with I, I, the the idea of saying how much can we automate versus augment and and certainly automation in some sense make sense in some capacities, but the more that we can think of these tools as augmenting us as humans and, and looking at these as how how are the extensions and certainly the data storytelling aspect is something that hopefully we have a uh, lock on for, for years to come and not out of fear, but out of that we're just be- much better positioned for that element. So want to ask you a few quick questions. We ask most of our guests before wrapping up and asking where people can locate you. But the first question here is, if you were a data visualization, how would you describe yourself? Which data visualization would it be? Ah, that's a good question. 
So I think I would go with the line chart. And the reason why I go with the line chart, that it's pretty intuitive to follow, okay? And it's linear, right? So it's moving over time, it's changing, it's going up and down. But at the end of the day, we can really kind of see how things are, it's intuitive and it's easy to follow. And so I think the line chart represents who I am as a person. Excellent. And so I might have a guess of this, but if I was going to ask, who's your favorite storyteller? Yeah, you probably know from the book, but I really am a, a, a huge fan of, of Hans Rosling. So if, if you're not familiar with Hans Rosling, he was, he was a doctor and he also worked in global health and did a lot of uh, TED Talks. And so he did a, a great series for called The Joy of Stats for BBC. And I actually feature him a couple times in my book. One, I talk about an experience that he had in Africa as a doctor. And then another one is I, I basically break down how he told a data story with a, a video clip in that, in that documentary, The Joy of Stats. So I, I look at a data story that he told about global health over time. And I'm, I'm just impressed by him and, and how he was able to take numbers and, and data that was really complex and, and make it approachable and really did it in a way that made the, the numbers approachable for other people who weren't statisticians, who weren't maybe even familiar with some of the, the data and problems and, and issues that he was raising through his numbers. And unfortunately, he, he passed away in, in 2017, but his legacy lives on through his TED Talks and through his work that he did, and, and obviously his son continuing the Gapminder.org organization there, Ola Rosling. But yeah, I, I think he's my hero in terms of being able to be a data storyteller that we can all emulate and take good examples from. And, and, and that's the thing I wanted to highlight in, in the last chapter of my book. I go through and break down how he was such a good data storyteller and how he applied some of the concepts and, and techniques that I cover in my book. And it's just neat to kind of see how he, as I was writing the book and writing that section, how he did that. And then I was also able to reach out because I had to obviously license the, the, the images for those, the, for the screenshots that I took from the video with Wingspan Productions. And, and they were the ones who recorded that video that was a part of BBC. And they actually, I was able to ask them. So there's a whole section, a little call out section where I talk about the production of that video and their experience in working with him. And it was neat. I was, a, again, a fanboy of Hans Rosling to see how they interacted with him and what his experience was during the project and, and, and just how he was so meticulous and so careful and, and so dedicated to his craft, just through the stories and experiences that they shared with me. So it was, it was fun. It was neat. And I'm glad I could incorporate that into the book. Yeah, I think that was a, and that's, I believe in the last chapter, if I, if I recall right, and I think that'd yeah, be a good place for people to, when they pick up the book, which everyone should, hopefully you can enjoy that too. And there's actually a bit.ly link, I believe in there that you have to yep. that section for that video. Yeah. So then the last question here is if you're, what is your favorite book, podcast, TV show, whatever it is, what's your favorite? Yeah, I think the one that I, I talk the most about is Made to Stick by Dan and Chip Heath. When I present at conferences, and, and obviously I've referenced it a, a few times in my book, but it was a, a great book. I think it was written back in 
2008 or seven. I can't remember exactly when, but it was it's over 10 years ago. But a great book just on communication. And, and they did a good job of kind of revealing how stories outperform statistics. And they talked about, they gave a couple of examples. One where they had uh, Chip Heath teaches a class at Stanford on communication, and they have an exercise where they give the students some data around a particular topic. And then he asked them to, to do a short presentation on those numbers. And so the students group up and they, they deliver a short presentation. And one in 10 of the students will actually incorporate a short anecdote in their presentations. And anyway, so they rate each other, they finish up, and they think the exercise is done. And then about 10 minutes later, Chip Heath would come back to them and ask them, okay, so what do you remember? And, and so only 5% of them could remember any of the statistics that were shared. But 63% of them could actually remember a story that was shared. So that was just one example where they showed that stories are more memorable than statistics. And then the other example that I pulled from the book was about a Carnegie Mellon study that was done on, so they did a, they gave students a technology survey and they asked them to fill it out. And that's where the experiment began after they filled out the survey, because they gave them five $1 bills and asked them if they'd like to donate any of that money to a charity, uh, Save the Children, a real charity. And then they had two versions of a, of a pamphlet or a brochure on the charity. And one version had a lot of data, had talked about the suffering of kids in Africa and how they, so many were suffering from disease or war or poverty and millions and hundreds of thousands of people. And these were all the data points. And then they had another version of that where it talked about Rokia, who was a seven-year-old girl in Mali and talked about the suffering of her family and how they were struggling to make ends meet and different things. And, and then they asked, okay, depending on which version, would they like to donate? And they found that the story version with Rakia outperformed the statistical version by more than double the amount in terms of the amount of donations that were made by the students to that based on that version. And so that shows us how persuasive stories can be more so than just a whole pile of data and a whole whole pile of statistics. So for me, those two stories were, I mentioned those in my book. I think they're phenomenal. I, I really enjoyed that made to stick book. I'd highly recommend it. Yeah, that that is a really good book, and they've had well, they've had a number of great books. I one of the books I reference uh, quite often in in talks around customer experiences is, is the Moments, the Power of Moments book that they also wrote. So yeah, oh, they, yeah, certainly Keith Brothers, some some good stuff. Well, it's been great to have you on today. And if people wanted to get a hold of you, other than of course buying your book, which they all should, everyone that's listened to this, you definitely should buy Brent's book. Like I say, I I do think it's it's Especially if you've uh, storytelling with data, if you've or uh, which is a which is an awesome book that Cole has. I think this is a great extension beyond that that will dive deeper into some of the dynamics that will make you a better data storyteller. Which I know everyone is trying to become. It's certainly a topic that everyone's trying to get there. It it, it is an easy work, and I think you'll when you read Brent's book, you you think about all the dynamics that come into play to have a great data story. And the more important, getting back to that two by two matrix with the more important that data story is, the more work you should be putting in to really hammer that home. So if people wanted to get a hold of you, follow your work, where do they go to do so? Yeah. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. Love to connect with people there. Also Twitter at Analytics Hero. I'm available there. And 
yeah, I think those are the two best places. I also have a website. So if you're curious about the book, you can go to effectivedatastorytelling.com. Excellent. Well, it's been great to have you on and I'm sure we'll have you on again. Like I say, it is a fantastic book and thanks again for talking and sharing it with the audience. Thanks so much, Dave. Great to be here. The Data Able Podcast is produced by Dave Mathias and Matt Jesser and made possible by Beyond the Data. At Beyond the Data, We are on a mission to help high-performing individuals successfully become champions for a more data-driven approach in their organizations. We believe that data science is only part of the equation. Getting value out of data requires building a culture that starts with you, is supported by executives, and trickles down to every facet of your organization. You can learn more about Beyond the Data and our approach at GoBeyondTheData.com.